structures depending on what we need to do. If the section is a narrative, we'll typically go through the whole story. This section, really, from, ver- from chapter 14 all the way to chapter 17, is didactic teaching from none other than Jesus Christ our Lord. He gave this teaching on the night before he was to be crucified. These are his final words, if you will, to those disciples specifically, their meeting in the upper room, communing with Christ. He's already sent away the evil one, Judas, who is the betrayer, led by Satan himself. He sent him away. This is a message just for his own, his disciples. Has immediate application to them in a specific way, but it certainly applies to all who would follow then in their footsteps as disciples. And so it's really immediately applicable as well to you as a follower of Jesus Christ to hear his words. And this is why we're going through this and emphasizing this. He'll say later on, I pray not only for these, that is those that are gathered, but for all who will believe in my name according to their word. This would be you. And so this is a message to you from Jesus Christ our Lord. And an important one in, in a sense that this is his final word to his disciples in a physical way here in his teaching. You remember how it began And a verse which I cherish a lot and think about, in chapter 14, he tells his disciples, both then and now, to to let not your heart be troubled, and neither let it be afraid. There will be much trouble for them, and there will be much trouble for us today. But we can have great faith, great faith that in Christ our Lord. Have the confidence. This is God incarnate who spoke both the words of truth and performed works of truth in his life. Miraculous works, even raising the dead. And he demonstrated really the greatest enemy that you could face that might cause the greatest fear, that is death, That has been overcome in triumph by Christ. Now, if you're not in Christ, you should be afraid. Very afraid. Your hearts will be troubled. And they should be. This is why many people mask it with all kinds of other things to occupy their mind, whether it's drugs or entertainment or just some other form of distraction. Because the world in which they live and the thoughts about the future are very troubling. Every one of you will die. And if you're, in, if you're in Christ, you will live. If you're not, you will die an eternal death. But for his disciples, for those that are in Christ, Jesus here then tells them not to be afraid. To have faith... Do not be enamored and overly concerned about whatever circumstances you might find yourself in, but remember that Christ is with you to the end of the age. That's what he's teaching his disciples. 
He's telling them that he's going to, to leave. But he's going to be with them. And how will that work out? He's going to go prepare a place for them in the Father's house. That is, all those that in Christ are going to have an incredible dwelling, not on the outskirts of town, but really an inside digs, if you will, in the very house of God. He's preparing a place for them. It is the destination for all who are in Christ Jesus to be united with him forever and dwell in perfection in the Father's house. And by the way, for those that are in Christ, not just these that were here hearing him, but all who would follow, every single one will enter into the Father's house, not as a visitor, not as a guest, but as a son. As a son and daughter in Christ Jesus our Lord. And as you walk in, and it may overwhelm you a bit, this isn't because of how great and good you are, it is because of how great and good Christ is, that he has determined to have a personal relationship with those that are his. Often Christians are called beloved. You can hear Jesus Christ speak directly to one of the churches in Revelation chapter 2. You can look it up later, there's seven of them. And to one of the faithful churches, he says, well, he who has an ear to hear, hear what the Spirit has to say to the church. What he's saying is, right, those that are in Christ will hear his words. How will they hear it? It is through this dynamic work of the Spirit, which we'll get into in verses 26 to today, and then some in 27. But nevertheless, what are they going to hear? Revelation 2, 17. To the one that conquers conquers because they're in Christ. I will give him some of that hidden manna and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except he who receives it. The imagery there is of a great triumph and a victory of what was custom. One of the customs of that day was to give the victor a stone and often in there might be written on the back a nickname or a pet name or something like that. Can I tell you this? The imagery is this. God knows who you are. You don't need to be afraid if you're in Christ. He knows not just about you, but he knows you personally. He knows you by name. In fact, he's given you one. And when you see it for the first time, I think you'll break down in great joy of tears to say, yes, God knew me all along and I can identify with the name that he has called me. You know, if you, <laughs> little kids, they love little pets and animals and that kind of thing. What do they often do? You have kids, they'll give them a name, won't they? Even if it's cat or dog, but it's still specific to that one, right? Yeah, that's the idea. There is this love. And can you imagine the Father's love expressed in those that are his own to even have an own name? We get a glimpse of it in just the miraculous way in which the world is made unique. God knows each person by name in a personal relationship. This is the omniscient God who knows each electron and proton in his creation and beyond that whatever exists beyond that that we don't even know yet he certainly knows his own his elect his beloved so when Jesus says in 1418 I won't leave you as orphans 
I always thought that focused mostly on the fact that he's going to come back, because he says he's going to come back. See, the orphan idea is, here Christ is, he's with his disciples, he's going to leave, but they're not going to be orphans because he's going to come back so that where, where he is preparing a place for you, he's going to come and get you. And that, that is true. That's, that's what's emphasized that. But beyond that, he says in 14.18, he says, I'm not going to leave you alone like orphans. So not only am I coming back for you, but while you're here, during whatever time he is appointed for you in this life, you're not alone. Now, you may feel alone, and you may feel abandoned at times. And that's why he has written his word to tell you what God incarnate has promised all those that are in Christ. You will not be alone. How will you not be alone? 14, I'm still there, sorry. We'll get to 15 at some point in my life. 1426, I just want to see the connection. Because what Jesus does in this teaching, all the way from 14 to 17, he's, he's circling it back around and around these same ideas, saying it's slightly different so that it'll be rooted in your soul. So that when great tribulation comes... Great circumstances of disappointment or trouble, whatever it might be, these things will continue to rebound in your mind. And the great news are actually written down in a text for you to read on a regular basis, and I highly encourage you to do so. But look at verse 26. How are you not alone in verse 18? Verse 26, the helper. The Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to remembrance all that I have said to you. And then he says this, Peace, verse 27, I leave with you. My peace I give to you, not as the world gives to you, give I to you. Why? He is with them in the sending of the Holy Spirit. The helper. Another of the same essence, another of the same kind. If the Holy Spirit is here dwelling among his believers, it is as though Jesus Christ is with you just the same. They are one. They are God. Therefore, I don't leave you peace like the world does, come and go, or temporary. No, this is a permanent dwelling So therefore, let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. Christ is with his beloved. He is coming to get his beloved. He is not going to leave his beloved alone by themselves as if they were orphan children. Christ is with his chosen even now. the end of 15, he returns back to this theme that was mostly left off, but he's circling around, and that brings us up to our text, which parallels with what we just finished here in chapter 14. Chapter 15 ends similarly. Look at verse 26. He says, when the helper comes, that's the one he promised to send. When he comes whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. And then you also will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. That's our text this morning. Let's pray. Father, 
I do pray that you would give us ears to hear your word. I pray for anyone who will hear it for the first time, that they may indeed confess Jesus Christ as Lord by the power of the Spirit. May these words go forth in great truth. May you feed your flock with the gospel of great glory. May we be strengthened in the faith of Christ our Lord and live in the triumph that he has promised. I pray in Christ's name. Amen. Now, if you're following along in this text where we have been, essentially Jesus is closing out this section with emphasizing simply this. He's the witness to the world, right? Christ has come, God incarnate. He has given his word. He has spoken. He has done all these works, these miracles, works of righteousness as well, but nevertheless, vast works, vast word. He is a witness to the world course they hated him (laughs) and he says they're going to hate you too if you witness to the world but nevertheless he is witness to what the glory of God and many who being saved have repented believed and have seen this glory but now he's going to go so what is he going to do what what's the plan when he leaves if you will to go prepare a place for his beloved to be at the right hand of God Well, he says, he says in our text here, he's going to send the Spirit as a witness and in conjunction with the Spirit, as we will unfold to some degree, the saints will also be a witness. You see that? There's twofold. Verse 26 and verse 27, you have the Spirit witnessing through his Word and the works, the Word and the works that the Spirit does, specifically... And, and in and through that, the saints will also, these disciples, and those that follow, those that are Christians, the saints will witness of the glory of God also through their word and through their works. That's the structure here this morning. So let's consider first the witness of the Spirit and uh, of this witness and the Spirit and saints. Let's look at the Spirit first in verse 26. It says, When the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father. He says, The Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father. Now that's an interesting phrase, and I'll try not to take too long on this or be too pandemic, pandemic, whatever that word is. Um, I'm tongue-tied already. And I try to bore you with um, stuff, but I do want to point this out simply because this is in your creed. And this phrase, this proceeds from the Father here. If you'll notice in our Nicene Creed that was read together by it, we have a word about the Holy Spirit in the next-to-last paragraph. And it says he proceeds, notice here, from the Father and the Son. That little phraseology, and I just bring it up here so you can note it and deal with it if you wish or just know about it at some point. Uh, In in Latin, philoque controversy is what it's called. Some people call it the schism of 1054. That little phrase. And the issue is, 
does the Spirit proceed from the Father or from the Father and the Son? That's what the Latin word means, and the Son, as we have written it in our text. If I look in the scriptures in 1426, it says the Father is said to send the Spirit. In 167, it says Jesus is to send the Spirit. And in 1526, here, both the Father and the Son send the Spirit. Now, who sends the Spirit? How about God? <laughs> the Spirit is God, right? And why make such a big deal about it and how this is the largest church split ever. I went to church one time and they split because the pastor didn't come to graveside to pray at somebody's funeral to which he wasn't invited in the first place. And they split the church. Serious. Well, here it was the largest split ever in history and I'm just letting you know that because that may come up and somebody asks you about it. What did they split over? Well, it wasn't this. <laughs> it's nothing. The, the Eastern Church and the Western Church by A.D. 1000 kind of really developed in, in separate uh, entities to some degree. There was already a divide there because one church spoke primarily Latin, the other Greek. One is Constantinople, modern-day Istanbul. The other is in Rome. And they grew in power and strength, and at some point they had a lot of disagreements, but they used this to be the, the, the final straw. That did it, really. And they both anathematized one another. And actually, nothing at that point in time, by 1054, probably nothing could be truer. They were both anathema by then. Most church splits occur because of nonsense. It's really about power, privilege, pride, prestige, and any other P word I can think about. It's dumb. I tell you what they don't do is they don't attempt to submit to Christ. You know what? You can agree to disagree if you want to think that, okay, technically it's just from the Father. I, I don't buy that. I think the Western church was right. Now, where they erred was, I think, somewhere in the... Five, this was written in 325 initially, revised a little bit along the way, and then, I don't know, somewhere around five, mid-500s, the Western Church decided unilaterally to add the sun, and that's where that initially came out. Another 500 years of that going on like that, then finally they made a big deal. And, and the big deal is they weren't submissive to Christ to the Holy Spirit. They began to challenge in their own selfishness and pride. And you know what? Quite frankly, miss the beauty of this text. Quite ironically, creeds, by the way, are not inspired. <laughs> they can be changed. You know I changed this one? I changed the word Catholic to universal because that's what it means. Today, we think Catholic means Roman Catholic. Right, uh, or if you just say Catholic, we're speaking of Roman Catholic. But um, Catholic simply meant universal. Ironically, by the way, too, when the East and the West split in 1054, they both proclaimed they were one 
universal church <laughs> and apostolic church. Again, maybe they were both apostates by that time, but I digress. They miss the beauty of what's going on here. So if somebody asks you about that controversy, it has really nothing to do with the text or anything significant. So, at, so now you're free to forget everything I just told you, except for uh, let's bear one another's burdens and strive for unity in the faith and not necessarily uniformity in every minor aspect, but demonstrate a submission to Christ and ultimately allow his word to, um, to be what is prominent. Verse 26 in our text here is an emphasis here that really what the Spirit is about is not some specific wording in a text, but it is a bearing of the witness. Notice verse 26. Who's he going to talk about? Christ. He'll be a witness of Christ. That's his job, and we'll get into more of that later, but uh, let me just mention some of that now. The, the influence of the Spirit here is not to make himself known by his word and his works. It is to make Jesus Christ known. The Spirit, both in word and work, speak of Christ alone. That is his role in his witness. And we often call the Holy Spirit the silent member of the Trinity. Not that he's quiet, but that he doesn't speak of himself. His role points us to Christ. And it is through Christ we come to the Father. That's the way that they have structured this economic Trinity, if you will. Look back in verse 26, the end of the chapter 14. And Jesus explains this role of the Holy Spirit. He says, well, when this helper comes, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, notice how it's joined there, but in any case, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance, note this, all that I have said to you. His point then is to bring up what Christ has taught his apostles. The apostles themselves, they're in a unique position when Jesus Christ departs. Remember, they've been with him in ministry for three years. Jesus has been constantly teaching them instructing them so when he goes how will they remember for sure what is true and how will they settle I don't know some of these little arguments like how does the Holy Spirit proceed we're going to figure that out well he will bring to remembrance all that Christ has said he remind him what is what is true one note here, the Holy Spirit, who has the same nature of Jesus, he is God himself indwelling each believer, bringing to remembrance and teaching in that sense. Apostles early on and early on in the church, they didn't have all of this, what you have in front of you, written down, right? We, we live in a very privileged time. Not only 
Uh, do we have it written since the apostles wrote it? But we have it, it's so prolific now. I mean, there's a Bible in every pew. The Bible in every smartphone or tablet that you have. It's just unprecedented how the Word of God is available. They didn't quite have it at that time, so here he's also pointing to an initial stage with the apostles who have a unique role and within the early church that the Holy Spirit is going to work uniquely in that time while the process of writing all of this down continues. In fact, we'll take a minute and look at 1 Corinthians chapter 12. 1 Corinthians was one of the first letters written to the church. It's very early on. There's some unique character about it. It was a church that really struggled a lot in what they were doing, and Paul straightened them out uh, in his teaching. But if you'll notice at this time, very early on, they didn't have the first letter written to a church called 1 Corinthians like we do. <laughs> Paul is sitting there penning this. Okay? So how are they functioning like we would be functioning? How would they be teaching in the church? And how would they know if what the pastor is saying is right? When I'm arguing that, yeah, I think the Western creed, uh, son, uh, the spirit proceeding from the father and the son is probably a better wording, and I could show you a couple of passages of scripture like I did and, and make that case, right? But how would they do it? Well, they're in a unique situation, and here in chapter 12, Paul will explain the role of the Holy Spirit. Now, he continues, but in specific, at that time, in that church. Look at just down to verse 3. He talks about the Spirit's role in first regeneration here. He says... I want you to understand, verse 3, that no one speaking in the Spirit of God, and remember this is the helper that Christ would send, says Jesus is accursed. Of course not. And no one can say on the opposite side that Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. Now, obviously, he's not saying mouth the words, right? He's saying from the heart, truly, you, truly from the heart, if Christ dwells in the heart of a person, they will not be an apostate. That's what the cursed is, right? They're not. Because why? Because the Holy Spirit will not call Christ the accursed, right? And he's dwelling in you. It can't happen. You won't be apostate. If you're apostate, if you demonstrate that, all you've demonstrated is you never had the Holy Spirit in you in the first place. That's what John would say later on in one of his epistles. But on the opposite side, then, no one can say Jesus is Lord. This is not, again, a just lip service. This is no one can say Jesus is Lord from the heart unless the Holy Spirit regenerates their heart. So we're not getting people then just to try to make some quick decision, logical as it might be, and good. What we're praying for is a dynamic work of this one who Christ sent to really regenerate the heart, to change the heart. And you know what the confession is, the demonstration that the heart has been changed? Because your heart then confesses, Jesus is Lord. 
Now, I hope to do some baptisms soon, and you will be a part of it. It is one of the greatest events in the church, and I look forward to it. Pray for that. We have several that are moving forward towards that direction. But when you see it, and what we do in our ceremony, we demonstrate going down into the water, buried with him in his death, raised to walk in newness of life. That's a ceremonial picture. But prior to that, you will notice that I always ask them, what is your confession? And their confession is, Jesus is Lord. And I about just lose it at that point, right? Because it's symbolic. It is an expression, but it's symbolic uh, expression of what's truly in the heart. Jesus is Lord. So ask yourself that. Anyway, that's a whole sermon in and of itself. But my point here is recognize it is through the dynamic, supernatural work of regeneration that somebody will truly confess Jesus Christ is Lord. But the Holy Spirit goes beyond that as well within the church. Through Christ, gifts were given to the church, procured. And it is the, the Holy Spirit who administrates them, if you will, who delivers them. Look at verse 4, if we're in 1 Corinthians 12, I think. There are a variety of gifts. That is, there's a lot of spiritual gifts then given to the church, the body of the church, to function. But, they're, but the same Spirit. That is, they come from the very Holy Spirit. There is a variety of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who powers them in everyone. By the way, that's a way to speak of the triune nature of God. Do you see that there? Yeah. Okay. Instrumentality through the Spirit, but ordained by God the Father and procured by Jesus Christ, who through his resurrection gives gifts to every man. In any case, there's different types of works. Service is um, a type of work. Gift is a gift received. Activities, things that you do. But notice it, it is through the Holy Spirit who has been given to the church who does what? Empowers everyone. It is through the power of the Holy Spirit that these gifts, whatever they might be, would be implemented. And for what purpose does the Holy Spirit then give gifts to the church? It is a manifestation, verse 7, to each individual within the body of Christ for the common good, for the purposes at that time. By the way, the needs of the church could change through time. Right now, at this point in history, there was a great need since they didn't have the words of Christ given to the apostles, written down in written form, but they would still function in worship like we are today. And so here, supernatural gifts given to the church for that purpose. And it, it mentions those things in verse 8. The spirit of utterance of wisdom. Uh, th this is beyond just intelligence and understanding. This is divine gift given to the church, to another utterance of knowledge. Same lane, uh, idea, utterance of knowledge. Knowledge of what? A knowledge of Christ. Knowledge of Christ's word by the same spirit. To another then even faith by the same spirit. The gifts of healing by one spirit. Again, works demonstrating that they were able to do the same things that Jesus Christ. Those, those works 
uh, validated the very word or the message that they were given. To another, the working of miracles. To another, prophecy. To another, the ability then to distinguish between spirits, that is, those that are truth and those that are error. To another, various kinds of tongues, which again were brought as a judgment to Israel who rejected Christ and another apps, an interpretation so the church would actually know what prophetic message was actually being said. And here's the note, verse 11. All of these are empowered by the one and the same Spirit. That is the Holy Spirit. This is his work within the church. And then what does he do? He portions to each one as he wills. It isn't... Something for you, oh, I'm, I'm going to try to work up this gift or that gift or whatever. No, this is all according to the Holy Spirit, empowering and then distributing as he wills in various ways and in various times. His work then was seen initially in the early church. He said, the helper come, he's going to, and what a great word for it, isn't it? Helper. He did help the church in a great way, and particularly at that need. But beyond that, it it was going to move forward into much more of a concrete way in the, the Holy Spirit, the helper, would then deliver the words of Christ in written form. And you can write these down. I'll read them for you because we'll need to move quickly. And I'm not going to go in a lengthy text, but I'll just read them for you. We went over these on Wednesday night. Two key verses speaking about the work of the Holy Spirit in delivering the words of Christ in written form to the apostles that are passed down to us even now. 2 Peter 1.21, No prophecy came by the will of man. But, it, but men then spoke as they were carried along by the what? You remember the Holy Spirit. It is the Holy Spirit who carries them along. It is as if they are working and they're writing from their own mind and from their own will, but yet it is the, they are under the influence of if you will, of the Holy Spirit. They're under the control of the Holy Spirit. And where that wind of the Holy Spirit blows, they will go expressed in their own language and their own ideas, but those ideas fully controlled and carried along by this helper, this Holy Spirit, who Christ promises to send. Paul would tell his young protege, Timothy then, towards the close, this is One of the final, certainly the final letter Paul wrote to the churches and to his protégés. As he finishes out, he will talk about the character of Scripture in 2 Timothy 3. And he says, all Scripture is breathed out by God. The idea is God expiring, if you will, breath. We say inspiration sounds better. It isn't necessarily... They wrote it, he breathed into it. It's that breath that carried along. It is very much God's word expressed. And then that word itself, which you have before you today, brought about by God, breathed out through the work of the Holy Spirit, is then profitable for teaching, which we're doing now. Reproof, correction, and training in righteousness that the man of God may be fully complete, equipped for every good work. 
it is written down. And much more, we have an objective source then to look at it, but it comes through the work of the Holy Spirit who witnesses to the very words of Christ. And beyond that, the Holy Spirit, in addition, witnesses to the very works of Jesus Christ. Look at, let's go to John uh, chapter 16. And we'll unpack that in greater detail in, in, uh, in the days of he- ahead. But if you remember, one of the things about Jesus Christ in calling his disciples, those that would follow him, he says, come follow me. That is, give up your occupation and follow me. Pick up your cross, he says, and follow me. And they did. They followed him. They made Christ the priority of everything. Oh, they may still have engaged in fishing from time to time and different things they needed to do, but what was the primary purpose of their life was to follow Christ. That was their mission. That was their objective. Now the Holy Spirit comes, another helper, an advocate, just like Christ, of the same essence of Christ, and he comes and does similar. John 16, eight, verse 8. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Those three things. See it? Sin, righteousness, and judgment. And then he explains, fleshes that out a little bit more. Concerning sin, because they don't believe. It is, it is the Holy Spirit that will convict the heart of the sinner, regenerate and cause them then to go from unbelief to belief. And it is this work of the Holy Spirit that he sends. Just like Christ did, Christ said, come, follow me. Instantly, their direction was changed, and now it is the Holy Spirit accomplishing that same kind of immediate work in changing the heart of the unbeliever to then believe. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you'll see me no longer. You know why there's only why there's any righteous activity at all in the work in the world in which we live? It is because of the power of the Holy Spirit. And if you see any righteous activity in your own life, it is because the influence of the Holy Spirit. Otherwise, if it, if it wasn't for the power of the Spirit suppressing the evil, this place would literally be a hell on earth. He has left us not alone, but with this Holy Spirit. Listen, I'm not going to change the social decadence of the world in which we live in. Oh, I'll try the best I can to help a little bit, but I recognize it's beyond what I can do. But is it beyond what the power of the Holy Spirit can do? No, it isn't. He can accomplish it. Christ has sent him. This this is as though Jesus was walking on the earth. Do you remember? Oh yeah, what did Jesus do? Let's see. He healed everybody. He rose rose people from the dead. He changed people's lives. Can the Holy Spirit do it? Absolutely. And he is doing it. And he is accomplishing it. He is, in that sense, a witness to the works of Christ and performing those Concerning judgment, because of the ruler of this world is judge. And the Holy Spirit stands in great justice. Look to him. Judgment has been rendered. It is just a matter of time until 
all is accomplished and all enemies are under Christ's footstep. But beyond that, in the text, look at verse 12. Here you have the Holy Spirit functioning in a communication to the believer. Christ says, verse 12, and he's talking to his immediate disciples there in that room. He says, I have a lot more to tell you, but you can't bear them now. Right? Well, one, they probably couldn't hold but so much. It's sort of like if you have children and you're trying to teach them, right? They can only handle so much and they let you know when they're done. <laughs> the bucket's full. Come back again the next day, right? Well, me too. I mean, I can only handle so much information and reading it at one time. Well, they cannot bear it now. It takes a certain maturity to grow, if you will, in grace and knowledge of the Lord. And so uh, there is more to teach. He's been with them three years. They need about 30 years of teaching. How will that be accomplished? Well, look at verse 13. When the spirit of truth comes, it is him. That is his role when he comes. He will then guide you in all the truth. He won't speak of his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. That is, he, like Christ, they're not speaking unilaterally. This is in union with the Godhead. This is God himself speaking and functions in this role to communicate to the believer and guide them into all truth. He says, he will glorify me. Again, the Holy Spirit focuses on Christ. That's, uh, that he is a witness to the very words of Christ and the work of Christ. He will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine, and therefore he'll take what is mine and declare it to you. In theology, we would call this the doctrine of illumination. Inspiration is what we just talked about where the Holy Spirit bore along those that he chose to write scripture to put that down. That's the doctrine of inspiration. Here is illumination. We'll take the very words of Christ and understand, and I, I like to use the word significance, understand the significance of it. Paul would tell the church at Corinth that the natural person, and by natural person he's speaking the normal person, the person, the default, how almost every person is in the world, the way we all begin, 1 Corinthians 2.14, the natural person doesn't accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. And he's Furthermore, so it's foolishness, furthermore, he's not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. That is, the only way that you're going to truly understand the words of Christ is through the Spirit of Christ. That makes sense? It is through the Holy Spirit that these things would become known. Uh, I've seen lectures of very intelligent people and debates and so forth. It's amazing how smart some people are can really understand technicalities of language and construction and all of that. And scholars, if you will, talking about the 
the transmission of the text and, and so forth and, and spend years and years to understand the original languages. But they don't understand Christ. It doesn't mean anything to them. I was astonished when I first heard a lecture on, from a guy who doesn't affirm the resurrection of Jesus Christ, doesn't affirm his divinity, and yet, man, I couldn't hold a candle to him when translating a Greek text. He could read it fluently. He understood the grammar better than anybody that I've ever met. And yet, he didn't know the significance of what he was reading. You don't have to have a PhD in ancient Semitic domain languages to come to Christ. You just need Christ. In fact, to that wise man, this whole idea is foolishness. And here he is standing looking at life. And he can't see. He's drinking water. And his thirst is not quenched. He's eating bread and he is starving to death. These things are spiritually discerned. It is a work of the Holy Spirit. And Christ sends the Holy Spirit to discern his word. And those that do recognize then that feeling that the preacher of Hebrews would say that this word of God then is active and it's living. It's powerful. It's sharper, really, than a two-edged sword. It pierces to the division of the soul and spirit and the joints and marrow, and it discerns the very thoughts and intentions of the heart. You ever been there? One of the greatest joys I have is just sitting down, being forced each week to have to come up with something to tell you guys. It's the best blessing in the world, and there are various points along the way that I am absolutely pierced asunder from the inside. I encourage you to spend time in this Word of God. It is alive and powerful. It is activated by the Holy Spirit. And if you haven't sensed that, you know what? Call unto Christ. Now, I I want to see you in your Word. I, I want to hear you in your Word. I want to understand your word. It isn't that the Holy Spirit, by the process of osmosis, you can just sit there and use this scripture as a trinket, you know, or as a pillow and lay your head on it and expect then to gain information. That's not what we're talking about. What we're talking about is understanding the significance of what this substance is saying. And to get to that point, that is going to take a dynamic work of the Holy Spirit first in regenerating your heart to where you have the ability to hear what the Spirit would say to the churches. It would take a cleansing of your heart. That is a confession of your sin. The Lord's not going to hear you if you regard iniquity in your heart. But if you confess, he's faithful and just to forgive you of all your unrighteousness. And it opened that pathway up for communication and communion with him. And then the Spirit will use the word, very word of God to 
cut away those things that would otherwise hinder you and build up those things that would help you. J.I. Packer explains this doctrine this way. It is, as he discusses how these words come alive, he says, only the Holy Spirit is the searcher of the deep things of God can bring about our realization of our sin-darkened minds and hearts. That's why it's called spiritual understanding, that is, spirit-given. Those who, along with sound verbal instruction, we have the anointing of the Holy One, and in that sense, know the truth. The work of the Spirit in imparting this knowledge is called illumination or enlightening. It is not giving of a new revelation, but a work within us that enables us to grasp and love the revelation that is there before us in the biblical text as heard and read and explained by teachers and writers. Sin in our mental and moral system clouds our minds and wills so that we may miss and resist the force of Scripture. God seems too remote to, point of un- to the point of unreality and in the face of God's truth, we are dull and apathetic. The Spirit, however, opens and unveils our minds and attunes our hearts so that we may understand. As by inspiration He provided Scripture truth for us, now by illumination He interprets it to us. Illumination is thus the applying of God's revealed truth to our hearts so that we may grasp as a reality for ourselves what the sacred text put forth. I think that's well said. The words of Christ are not lacking, but we are lacking. The Spirit will provide the inspiration to receive His word which you have before as well as the illumination to reveal the significance of it. Moving on back to John 15 and verse 27, the second aspect, it is certainly that Christ will send this Holy Spirit to accomplish a witness in the world, both in his word and the works that are done, the empowering, the illumination, all of that. And now then the saints then are brought back into this discussion before he leaves, verse 27, when he turns around and points at his disciples, and he says, you're going to bear witness too. Now, I understand the Holy Spirit coming in, bearing witness in the place of Jesus Christ. But now, he points back to his disciples and say, well, you're going to do it too. Obviously, empowered through the Holy Spirit, but they're going to be a part of this work. They're going to be a part of this word, this proclamation of it. And to them specifically, the disciples, he says, well, you've been with me from the beginning. Remember, it was Christ who called this specific group. They, have a, they do have a unique commissioning. That's why we call them the apostles, the sent ones from Christ specifically to go forward. 
The church in that sense, as Paul would say in Ephesians 2, the, the church has been built on the foundation of the, of the apostles and the prophets. The prophets who came before, you can think of those, the Old Testament saint and the intertestamental testamental period, such as John the Baptist and others in the early church at Corinth, before this apostolic message was written down in scripture form. So they came, and then Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, Ephesians 2.20. He said to these disciples, you're going to be my witnesses. And what will they do? They will be a witness when they receive the power from the Holy Spirit when he comes upon you. And you're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and the other most parts of the earth. Most of you understand how the map of that area works. Jerusalem is a city. Judea is the part beyond that. We can think of it as the county, if you will. Samaria was really a mixed foreign land within their land. And then, of course, the uttermost parts of the earth, which indeed they did. This small group of apostles, a small group of set ones that Jesus promised, you will be witnesses. They went everywhere bearing the word. And it wasn't just the fact that they had the ability to speak. Some of them couldn't even speak all that well. They just went out and proclaimed the very words and work of Christ. They proclaimed that he has died he was buried, he rose again. They called people to repent and believe in Jesus Christ. And to most people, that was foolishness and folly. And to most religious people, that really turned them off so much so that every one of them were killed for their witness. Save John, who was in prison to write the book of Revelation. The world hated them. But they were empowered by the Holy Spirit to do it and it is through that Holy Spirit power that that proclamation accomplished the mission to which Christ called them to. And their mission, by the way, wasn't a one-time event to go across the world to witness of the word and work of Christ. It is in that proclamation of his word and work was to do what? Most of you have memorized Matthew 28, 19 and 20. Go, therefore, and do what? Make disciples. That's their mission. Their mission was to go and proclaim the work and words of Christ so that others would also come and follow Christ. And in so doing, they were to go to all nations, that is, all ethnic groups, that is, to the end of the world. That's the mission. That's the mission of all of those who would call themselves Christians. Certainly empowered by the power of the Holy Spirit to accomplish this mission of making disciples to which those disciples will make disciples and those disciples will make those disciples and it'll never end until Christ is done and comes to take you back to where he has prepared a place for you so that you will be with him forever. That's the purpose of life. That's the purpose of this life, ultimately. 
oh, enjoy the good gifts and the things that he has given you and all the interests that you have, but don't allow that to crowd out what your ultimate goal in Christ is, and that is to follow Christ, to speak of his word, to speak of his work, and to call men to repent and believe and to teach them all things that Christ has commanded you. And do it in the name of the triune God because there is no other. Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. When we pray, I, I, I almost despise this whole modern idea of a generic God. There is no generic God. We have a God who has been revealed through the person of Jesus Christ. It is the Holy Spirit who would point to Christ and it is only through Christ that you will know the Father. And He's triune. And in our gospel message to people, we will teach them and baptize them, that is, immerse them in Christ in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And the promise of Christ is, I am with you always, even to what? The end of the age. I thought he was going to heaven to prepare a place for you. Oh, we forgot. He sent the helper. (laughs) One of the same essence. It is Emmanuel, God with you. Do you understand, in that sense, the spirit of Christ, as Paul would sometimes explain it, he's with you and even with you right now. And so we preach this word of Christ, as Paul would tell the church of Corinth, not in words of wisdom, but in a demonstration of absolute power through the Holy Spirit. Not in the words of men, but in the very power of God. That God would be glorified in our word and our works. And beloved, do you see what a great privilege it is to be in Christ? To be a follower of Christ? That Jesus Christ himself not only sends the Spirit out to be a witness of his word and his work, but also you, and calls you then God's fellow workers, brought into this amazing truth. It is the combination of this testimony, the Holy Spirit and his holy saints in a combination here that God will use in this world to draw many sons and daughters to believe on Jesus Christ and put their faith in him. He will bear witness about me, Jesus said, and you will bear witness about me. Let's pray. Father, I do pray that you would enable us Weak and frail as we might see ourselves, maybe even lacking in understanding, education. May we be like a poor blind man that would said, I, I don't know, I couldn't see, but now I can. Simple testimonies of faith. And may we grow in grace in that knowledge and be able to extol even greater glories of who you are to generations to come. Ultimately, that your name would be glorified. We thank you for the privilege it is to work and witness of the word and works of Jesus Christ. 
And I pray that our faith will be empowered and emboldened through the work of the Spirit even this day. I pray in Christ's name. Amen. Take a moment, beloved, privately, where you're at, to think on these things. If you've been convicted at heart, you haven't trusted Jesus Christ as Lord, I implore you, do it now. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. If you have sinned to confess, confess it now. If you have a commitment to make to Christ, make it now. Enjoy your communion with Jesus Christ and hear his word today. Take a moment to think on these things.